On behalf of Carroll County, welcome. For our program tonight, we have author Patty Callahan Henry, who will be interviewed by our good friends at Two Sides to the Story podcast, Ted Zaleski and Lori Hairstetter. If you haven't subscribed to their cast yet, please do so. You can download episodes through Spotify or Apple. Patty Callahan Henry is a New York Times, EPCA, Globe and Mail, and USA Today best-selling author of 16 novels, including her newest, The Secret Book of Flora Lee. She's also a podcast host of original content for her novels, Surviving Savannah and Becoming Mrs. Lewis. She is the recipient of the Christie Award Book of the Year, the Harper Lee Distinguished Writer of the Year, and the Alabama Library Association Book of the Year for Becoming Mrs. Lewis. She is the co-host and co-creator of the popular weekly online Friends in Fiction live web show and podcast. Patty was also a contributor to the monthly life lesson essay column for Parade Magazine. She has published in numerous anthologies, articles, and short story collections, including an audible original about Florence Nightingale titled Wild Swan, narrated by the Tony Award winner, Cynthia Arrivo. A full-time author, mother of three, and grandmother of two. I can't believe you're a grandmother. She lives in Mountain Brook, Alabama with her husband, Pat Henry. Her newest novel, The Secret Book of Flora Lee, is set outside Oxford in the hamlet of Binzi and will be released on May 2nd, 2023. Put that on your calendars with Simon & Schuster Atria. Atria. Please be sure to purchase Patty's books at your local independent bookstore like A Likely Story or Rudolph Girls or check them out from your local public library like Carroll County Public Library. If you are joining us live, go ahead and type any questions you have in the comments and we'll try to get to as many as we can. Welcome Patty, Lori, and Ted. Thank you, Lisa. We're so glad to have you with us tonight, Patty. Um, just to give you a little bit of backstory, we are in a space tonight called Exploration Commons. It is part of the Carroll County Public Library. And about three months ago, it is where we did our first podcast episode with a live audience. And flash forward three months later, you are our first author interview as two sides to the story. Um, there have been many interviews by Ted um, for the library um, with authors, but you are the first for two sides and my very first author interview. So oh. welcome to the show. I'm and um, we're so happy to have you. And I'm, I'm excited. I'm an excited person all the time. Ted, on the other hand, tends to be a little bit more reserved. But then you're a good pair. He is so excited this evening um and there's a big reason why so in in your book once upon a wardrobe uh origin story is is brought up yes and i would like ted to tell you the origin story of how we got you here tonight oh i want to hear it that's fantastic <laughs> first of all let me say how happy i am to be here thank you for having me um Ted and I have been emailing, trying to get this figured out for a while, and I'm honored yeah. that I'm your first one, Lori. It's awesome. Yeah. 
So Ted, tell, tell us about how this came to be. So in my office, not last Christmas, but two Christmases ago, we had a, a Secret Santa gift exchange. Okay. And somebody in the office gave me Once Upon a Wardrobe. Nice. I didn't know the book. I was unaware of you at, at, at that time. Um, but um, another person in the office who knew about my reading, I'm not sure how she came to it, but suggested Ted might like this. Awesome. And I did. I really, really liked the book. And then I gave it to Lori and said, Lori, you need to read this. Mm -hmm. which, which Ted does often. Awesome. Um, and I'll tell you, I, I opened the cover. I read a, a little bit of the beginning. And um, there, it is introduced pretty quickly that there is sadness to come, that there is a, a small boy with a, with a terminal illness. And I want to say that usually that that's that breaks a rule for me. I don't usually like to read books where bad things are going to happen to children or pets or me neither. I get yeah. it. <laughs> so it was at Ted's strong recommendation that I pushed in a little further and then had a hard time putting it down. Oh, thank so you. we both fell in love with your book thank and you. the story about you reaching out and making this happen. Yeah. So. Then I, I got in touch with you. Uh, I really had no expectation that I would hear back from you. You never know how it goes with authors' emails. Yeah, especially on the on like a contact form. Yeah. Right. But um, but you you got back to me. I already knew I wanted to talk about the book. Yeah, everything Laurie was just saying mm -hmm. uh, that was big. But then something you said to me in in one of the emails was, "Any day talking about wardrobe is a good day." Ah. When I read that, not only did I want to talk about the book, but I knew I wanted to talk with you. Yeah, thank you. That's so sweet. Well, it's true. I mean, they, they stole my heart. And Lori, I have to say, before we dive in, yeah. that it breaks my own rule to start really? off knowing I don't read those books, I don't write those books. Um, but George and Meg's came complete as they were. There was no way for me to make them other than that because it was literally life and death. Yes. So, you know, Lori said this is her first author interview. It's a, another first of sorts. I've done a good number of interviews, mm -hmm. but this will be the first time that I read a book and then sought an interview rather than getting an interview and then reading the book because I had had the interview. Oh, that's awesome. I'm breaking all the rules. Breaking <laughs> right? all the rules. Yep. So first question for you officially. Um, let's start let's start with the cover and with the title of the book. Okay. So Once Upon a Wardrobe. Um, obviously there is a reference to another very popular book and well-known book. Just wondering how much of the title was your decision versus maybe influenced by your publisher? That's a Did great question. This was it from the beginning? No, no. I think what I first called it was, I rarely have my book titles immediately. Okay. Um, I have, you know, a lot of writer pals and they know their book titles right off the bat. Like they, they have their title and then write the book. I've always had to work my way into titles. Um, so 
for example, becoming Mrs. Lewis, which is the story of C.S. Lewis and, and his wife, Joy Davidman, which was the seed for this story, Once yes. Upon a Wardrobe, which we'll get to. But um, that was had a different title. So when I first started writing this book, I tentatively called it Into the Wardrobe. Oh. And then as I was doing my research, um, doing my due diligence and doing my research, one of the best nonfiction research books out there is written by a man who helps run the Wade Center at Wheaton, where Lewis's papers are, and um, Dr. David Downing. And it was called Into the Wardrobe. So I knew that I, when I found that book, I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't name it that. So I didn't have a title for a long time. And I was getting really frustrated and I knew I wanted the word wardrobe in there. And one afternoon I was dry, I had a long drive ahead of me and I promised myself that I would not listen to a radio or a podcast or have a phone call and that I would just drive in silence until the title bubbled up. And so I asked myself, what, what is this book really about, right? There's, there's the plot of a book, and then there's what a book is really about. And for me, the, the, what it was really about was the power of story. And mm -hmm. so, once upon a time. So that's where the title came from. And I took it to my publisher, and they loved it right away. There was no um, back and forth or discussion about it. They, they were kind of trying to play off the line, the witch in the wardrobe, and the boy, the mole, the fox, the horse. You know, what, trying to think of a title like that. And I was like, no, it's too derivative. This is, so that's what we ended up with. I love it. You know, it's interesting um, conversations I've had with other writers about titles and their role, publisher's role, sometimes fights over what's going on. Oh, yeah. Now, I um, talked to Laura Lippman once, and she said, I'm terrible at titles. I just tell them, here's the book. Tell me what the title mm. is. And sometimes I do. Sometimes I get, okay, for The Secret Book of Flora Lee, which comes out in May, on May 2nd, mm -hmm. um, when I sold that book and when my publisher bought it, it was called The River Child. And I wanted that title so bad. It was <laughs> like, it, it was the title that um, I'd written the book under for two years. It was the title I wanted. And they were like, we just don't think it's right. So let's try to find another one. And I tried and tried. And finally, I said exactly that to Laura Lippman's style. I said, you pick. You pick it. You pick. Like, I've given you a bunch. You've given me a bunch. Let me know when you have the one you want. And, of, of course, it's the exact right title, which kind of makes me mad. But because um, <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. So, yeah, sometimes that happens, Ted. Like, they, we can't see our, we don't have enough objectivity sometimes to see, to see what a better title might be. So you mentioned uh, becoming Mrs. Lewis and it being the seed of Once Upon a Wardrobe, which is actually the next thing we want to talk about. What I was going to say is you know, I, I read that and in, in reading it, I said, there's no way Once Upon a Wardrobe happened without becoming Mrs. Lewis happening. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? hundred percent. So as authors, as you know, and you've probably asked in your interviews, where did you get your idea? Where do ideas come from? How do you decide what to write next? And it's 
Such a difficult question to answer, where do ideas come from? Which is a little bit of what Once Upon a Wardrobe is about. But there, it's, it's, sometimes you can point to, well, I heard this, or I was interested in that, or I noticed this. But I can very firmly point to what happened that gave birth to Once Upon a Wardrobe. So here's the story. I was doing my research for Becoming Mrs. Lewis, which is, as we said, about um, C.S. Lewis's wife, Joy Davidman. She is an incredible, complicated, complicated, fiery poet, author, novelist, married mother of two that became C.S. Lewis's wife. And when I was doing my research, the book is about her. I mean, 90% of my research was about her because I didn't know very much about her. I'd been reading Lewis for all of my life, but when I had to sit down and do the deep work for Lewis to make sure of his timeline, to check on his childhood, to figure out like when was his conversion, when would he have written letters to Joy Davidman, where in there did The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe come out, like the timeline. So I was doing all my research for that, and I had like a thought in the back of my mind, and the thought was, I can really see in his life that I'm researching moments that I can see in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm -hmm. And I am not a Narnia scholar. I, you know, I haven't studied Narnia my whole life. For me, it was only about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I was rightly obsessed with when I was a child. And so I could see these hints of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in his real life. And I thought about it, and I noticed it, but I didn't think I'd write about it. In fact, when anybody ever asked, will you write about Lewis again? I was like, no, I'm done. Like, <laughs> that was years of my life, and I'm done. Like, I loved it, and I love her, and I love him, but I'm done. And then mm -hmm. March of 2020 hit. And we know what happened in March of 2020. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And I was about to go on tour for the paperback of Becoming Mrs. Lewis. And my next historical novel called Surviving Savannah was about to come out a couple months later. And the world shut down and we went home. And my grown daughter, my married daughter, who's 30, lived, lived in Hawaii, so I couldn't see her. And then my graduate school son came home. Oof. And then my college-age son came home, and then my husband came home, all locked down. And there we were again in the same house, sharing the same Wi-Fi, and I wanted something comforting. I was having, trying to make sense. It, it, it's not that hard to remember to almost three years ago now, how scared we were, yes. right? I was scared to see my parents. I couldn't fly to see my daughter and my grandbaby. There was only one at the time. And I started thinking about this man who took the, these moments from his life, these really hard moments, and turned them into something extraordinary in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So I sat down, and that's when George and Megs came to visit. Mm. So the, the seed was in the research for Mrs. Lewis. And I, I always say that I think this book would have been written without the pandemic. I'm sure at some point 
um, my muse or whatever you want, you know, would have said it's time, but it would not be the same book as it is without having been locked down like that. You know, you, you couldn't have set this up any better for us with the next question. Ah, I saw you, your script. No, you, Yes, you must have. You just said a few minutes ago about, you know, where, where do these ideas come from? Are, are you familiar with the book Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert? Oh, yeah. I read them all. Big Magic, The Artist's Way, Rick Rubin's new book on creativity. I'm a yeah. junkie for that stuff. Oh, all yeah. Right. I love it, too. And um, it is it's a favorite book for me. It's, it's on my ideal bookshelf. It's one of those that you refer back to for inspiration yeah. as, as a creative type of person. And she asked this, this question for those of us listening tonight who aren't familiar of where do ideas come from? Yeah. And, I, and I love her concept of, of that it's not mine, it's not yours. Yeah. It's out there in the universe for the taking. And either you you're listening and you get to grab onto it or, yeah. or it goes away and somebody else might get it. Yep. So I'm just curious, knowing that you've read the book and seeing that this is such a important topic in Once Upon a Wardrobe, what, what do you think about that? The ideas, you're, you're a very successful novelist. You haven't had one great idea. You've had many great ideas. So what do you think about Big Magic? Well, first of all, I think I've had a lot of really bad ideas too. Um, so I've, I've had enough bad ideas that I've you know, been 100 pages in and been like, what was I thinking? Yeah. Um, so like I said, I'm kind of a junkie for that stuff. And I think what's so interesting about it is that there isn't an answer to that question. Okay. So Big Magic has its theory. Rick Rubin, his new book, oh, I thought it was on the table right there. It, it's on creativity. Um, has his theories, you know, Julia Cameron in The Artist's Way has her theories. And, but Mary Oliver is one of my favorite poets, and she, she has a poem that I won't even try to recite. But it pretty much says the same thing, that if she doesn't grab that idea as it's floating by, mm -hmm. um, it's gone. And there, I do believe that, that we're all swimming in this. We are not separate. I am not sitting here separate from you. It looks like it, right? But I'm not. We are all swimming together in this, I don't know. That's the fascinating part. Mm -hmm. And um, what I do affects you and what you do affects me. And we all affect each other, right? And so I do think that ideas are in that mix and that they're in there for all of us. Yeah, we, we call it connections. And every yes. time we read a book and every time you have a conversation of depth with someone, you find these connections. There's like these spider webs that, mm -hmm. that, that go around. And I think I even use that in Once Upon a Wardrobe that we're just, we're connected in this tapestry that we mm -hmm. can't see. Um, and I, I do, there's, a, all authors know if you have, a big artist community or author community that that certain ideas or theories or or subjects bubble up around the same time. For example, um, the Secret Book of Flora Lee is coming out in May, and it is about as a backdrop. That's not what it's fully about, but as a backdrop is something called Operation Pied Piper, which is the operation in 1938 where they sent children to the countryside. Um, to be safe from the bombings, which came from Once Upon a Wardrobe. Mm -hmm. And so 
Once Upon a Wardrobe planted a seed for another book. There are three books this spring and summer by historical fiction women authors about Operation Pied Piper. And I don't know of a single one before that. And all three of us wrote to each other like, are you kidding me? Because none of us knew we were doing it. So I, I think things like that do, do bubble up. Yeah, you're talking about um, kids being sent from the countryside. Yep. Um, the book that I've recommended to more people than any other book in my life, I actually tied to that too, it's called um, The War That Saved My Life. Oh, wow. I don't know that one. Kimberly oh. Brubaker Bradley. Okay, I'm going to write that down. It's a, a really, really good book. Okay. Almost as good as Once Upon a Word. <laughs> Almost. The War That Saved My Life. Okay, I will write that down. So um, in preparing for this interview, I read, obviously, Once Upon a Wardrobe. I, I didn't show you this, but... Um, oh, I love that. I need a screenshot of that. That's awesome. But I also read um, four other books uh, of yours. I oh, wanted wow. to see more of you. Now, we already talked about Becoming Mrs. Lewis. And uh, that it's a fictional version of the real life relationship between uh, Lewis and Joy Davidman. I read Surviving Savannah, which you mentioned. Yeah. And for people listening, um, kind of parallel stories, uh, people in 1838 and a ship called the Pulaski that sinks. And then a modern day story about um, a historian who's getting to explore the recovered Pulaski and the lives of some of those people. And it's about a true, it's about a real shipwreck. I mean, oh, it's, yes. a, it's a lost to time story about a ship that, uh, um, steamship that left Savannah in 1838 and blew up off the coast of North Carolina. Yes. And then I read uh, Where the River Runs. Mm. About that a, book is so old. <laughs> well, me too. That book, I was so young when I wrote that book. That book came out in 2004. That book is almost 20 years young, younger than me. Well, uh, and still good. But a, uh, a woman returns to the place of her youth to try and stick up for a childhood friend who's accused of a crime. Ah. And then the last one I read was the book at, at Water's the bookshop at water's end another woman returning to her oh there you go <laughs> and um say lori and i have a, a great deal of affection for books with bookstores in them i think we have a an episode coming someday that's going to be just about, about books with bookstores yes or libraries in exactly. fact in the secret book of flora lee there's an antiquarian bookshop in that wow. one. oh okay. we're gonna have to definitely yeah. check that one out I'll get you so an early copy. In, in reading the, those other books, uh, something that kind of stuck out to me was your, your woman characters, mm -hmm. um, women standing up for themselves, mm -hmm. fixing their lives, uh, trying to find where they're supposed to, to be. And I was thinking about Meg, and she wasn't quite like them, but there's some feel of, of, of that, you know, you know some of the the limitations that Oxford puts on on, yes. on women, um, surprise at Jack's mother that she wrote and she had degrees. Yeah. Uh, so I was wondering, uh, first, what I thought I saw in your women characters, is that something you set out to do or just something that kind of happened? 
And did those other women characters lead to Meg in any way? Oh, wow. I think everything we write um, leads to the next thing. Like we're talking about becoming Mrs. Lewis led to Once Upon a Wardrobe. And Once Upon a Wardrobe, Operation Pied Piper was one of the seeds for Flora Lee. Like, I think everything we do, we only have our own compost pile to write from. I don't have your compost pile. Sadly, I have mine. Right. So everything I've done and written, there is this, it's such a good question about my women characters. And and honest answer is, I don't know. I'll have to ask my therapist. But (laughs) I think that um, there's this great line in the book called I Am Lucy Barton. And in that book, the, the character Lucy Barton is talking to her writing teacher. Lucy Barton is, wants to become a novelist, and she's talking to her writing teacher. And she says something about being worried about what to write about next. And the teacher says, don't worry about what to write next. We all only have one story, and we just tell it in different ways over and over. So, Ted, I don't know, but I am fascinated by this idea of women coming into their own despite either societal, marital, or familial expectations. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why Joy Davidman fascinated me so much, because she is a really complicated woman. Like, she died in 1961. And nobody has written about her for a reason, right? Like she's, she's a very complicated, emotionally complicated woman. But despite societal expectations, despite marital expectations, despite familial expectations, she felt like she needed to find out who God made her to be. And so in that way, of course, there's a lot of disagreement about how she did it. And not everybody is happy with how she did it, but that doesn't, does that matter? And so I think almost all of my characters, male too, um, are going along in their life and they hit a crossroad or a brick wall or a Y in the road, however you want to visualize it. And they're doing what they do. They're doing it the way they do it. And something happens where they can't do it that way anymore. They have to take a right or they have to take a left. And that is what I am interested in writing about. So you mentioned your male characters. And obviously, I don't know how anyone could not love George. Oh, my gosh. George is, uh, he's very special. Yeah. And um, so George is is an important character for a lot of reasons, but he's, He's sort of the, the start of the domino effect yeah. of how a book can change someone's life. Yes. Because he reads this book, he falls head over heels for it. It becomes a life that he can't have of his own. Yeah. Um, he has this whole imaginative world built around this book being real for him. And so that influences his sister and she, she goes on a quest for him because of it. And that changes her life in significant ways Um, and how she thinks about how she feels about her capacity for love and even in their family. So there's, um, there's actually um, a quote from Meg's in your book that says, 
If dad grew wings and flapped about the room like a madman, I would not have been more amazed. Because, <laughs> That's so, did I write that? It's so funny when my lines are quoted back to me. Gonna, it's yeah. beautiful. And it, it just really shows the how a book can change one person, three people, yeah. lots of people. So this is an important concept for us. It's something we talk about a fair amount in, in our show is finding books that, that get you like that that really just touch you deeply. So can you share with us a, a life-changing book for you? Oh, wow. I needed some warning. Um, <laughs> you can come back to it. If oh, you no, no, no. I'm going to, I'll tell you a couple of them. But um, I would say that there's been different books at different moments sure. in my life, right? And if you, and I know you have them too, because if you read a book in high school and then picked it up again at 40, like it's a, it's the same book. Nobody changed the words on the page, yeah. but books are living things. So that when you pick it up at 40, it's a completely different book. Or you pick up a book and you're like, what does everybody think this book is so great? And then you pick it up 10 years later and you're like, oh my God, I get why this book is so great. Um, so as a young child, of course, I would say Narnia. Mm -hmm. um, because look at my body of work now. Yes. It, it obviously influenced me. Um, in college and, and right around that time, there's a Southern author named Pat Conroy whose work I was, um, and I ended up being very dear friends with him. And I, I, he's one of the transformational authors and people in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and then for a nonfiction book, there is, a, there is an Irish author and theologian named John O'Donohue that I am rightly obsessed with also. And he has a book called Anamkara that I can never get enough of. And I give it to people all the time as gifts. Like if they come stay at my house, they get one on their pillow. And Anamkara is a um, Irish word for soul friend. Oh, nice. Yeah, and then he has, he has a book of blessings out. I actually gave to my mom for Christmas. So I, his work, I just think is transformational. For me, a lot of the books that have changed me have also been poetry books. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. You've given me quite a book list. I've been jotting notes the whole time. Thank oh, you. that's awesome. I want to hear yours. Tell me a book that changed your life, Lori. Uh, well, it is funny what you say about, um, you know, time in your life and how that, that makes a difference. So um, it's, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna forget the author you're gonna remember for me. Um, Gift of the Sea. Oh, yes. Um, I yes, can see her name. Yes, Lindbergh. Yes. So, I have that at the house. I, yeah, I, have that. I yeah. think I own more than one copy of that one. Yep. I have given it as a gift. Yes. It's one of those that you refer back to and it just came into my life at the right time in my life. Books do that. A, yeah, they it had enough that. I needed to hear at the time and, and it's always gonna be um, on my ideal bookshelf. I love it. How about you, Ted? Hmm. I'm flipping the interview. I like that I you're was... asking us questions. That's well, this fun. is what I do. So I'm like, it's hard not to, to, to go back to it. Sorry, I'll be quiet after this. No, Ted, what was true. one that you that changed your life? I don't know if I have an answer. Oh, my. We've stumped him. We have stumped the interviewer. Yes. <laughs> you can think about it. He's used to being on the other side of the I know. I'll, I'll think about it. I'll think about it some. Okay. But I, I wanted to go back for a second to the um, 
the thing that Lori said that Meg said about her father flapping around the room. Yeah. For people who haven't read the book, I just wanted to set it up. Um, Meg's found out that her father had read A Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, which was absolutely astounding to her. And that's when she said, I couldn't have been more surprised if he had started yeah. flapping around the room. Thank you for doing that. I don't think I said enough about what it was that created that to make sense. So, yeah, yeah that's that's an important thing to bring up. So on you being on the other side, mm -hmm. uh, you have your Friends in Fiction yeah. podcast. Um, be interested to hear a little bit about that. And also just want to say, you know, Lori mentioned we've been doing this three maybe exactly three months. Yes. I think it was okay. October 26th we started. Mm -hmm. So we're still figuring things out. But one thing we're running into is it seems like the ideas about what we want to do are piling up more quickly oh, than yeah. we can do anything with them. Now, I was wondering if that is true for you and maybe for people who haven't seen Friends in Fiction, uh, you could just talk a little bit. I will. I'm, I want to mention, I'm going to tap back. I'm going to answer that, I promise. But I'm going to tap backwards to Meg's father reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Because so much of Once Upon a Wardrobe is about this friction yeah. between logic and imagination, between <laughs> reason and imagination. And her father had been refusing to dive into that world. And so... Um, and that friction is real every day for all of us, every day for me, right? Because I'm half of a nurse. That was my first career. My really? master's degree is in medicine, right? And I went I'm, to college for nursing. This did you really? Crazy. Oh, that's great. Yes. So I'm like, there's this me that's, that's like totally yeah. logical and rational and medical. And mm -hmm. every time somebody quotes a fact for me, I'm like, what's your source? My family hates it. Where'd you get that? What's your source, right? And then the other half of me is like, so the ideas are in the universal unconscious and we're all <laughs> tapped into it. And there's a source for which we, you know, so I'm always having that friction between logic and reason and logic and reason. So that's why I had her say that about her father. All right. Um, so friends in fiction is an astounding silver lining to the pandemic. Because when the pandemic happens, there were five of us who um, had our book tours canceled, canceled, five friends. And one of those friends, her name is Mary Kay Andrews, she's a very famous novelist, um, got us all together and said, let's get together and wine with wine. Yeah. And we did. And we had so much fun because we had no, you remember that time you couldn't see anyone. Yeah. And like we were just learning to use Zoom and and she said, let's put this on Facebook Live. I think people would love to hear us because we were talking about publishing, how hard it was to write because we were scared, like all of it. And I have to admit, I was the naysayer. And I said, um, who wants to hear us talk about all of this? Hmm. And um, Mary Kay said, whatever. If they don't show up, they don't show up. Well, they showed up. So about five shows in, we did it every Wednesday night and just got on there and chatted about publishing and writing in our books and what was going on in the world. Um, we said, well, we must be getting boring. Let's bring in and interview another author. Um, and at this point, we had made our own Facebook page called Friends in Fiction. I think we had 300 members. 
And so we decided to bring on someone who might need a little help, need some uplifting. I'm kidding. It was Kristen Hanna. <laughs> so we brought in Kristen Hanna. And, and after that, y'all, so we are now, I'm going to make a long story short. So we are now almost three years in, almost 155 interviews in. We are live every Wednesday night, just like you on Facebook and YouTube. We <clears throat> interview authors. If you have a favorite author, we've probably interviewed them. Um, we, we interview a diverse range of authors from science fiction to romance to men, women. It, it's, it's been the most astounding silver lining and one of the funnest things that has ever grown out of books for me, except for being on the road and meeting people. Because it was as if, you remember that movie, um, Field of Dreams, like build it yeah. and they will come? Mm-hmm. We are at 112,000 thousand members and it is we always say it is the kindest corner on the internet it is full of 112,000 people who love books and they just share books and read books and talk about books and we do interviews and now that the world has opened up we're doing live events like in-person live events um we're going on the road together joked about getting a tour bus we're not doing it you should you totally Mm. should like the Brady Bunch. I mean, uh, the Partridge family. So, yeah, we have we have a live event in Columbus in April and Charleston in May. So we're, it's been astounding. But, Ted, you're right. What happened in the beginning was we had so many ideas. And we were locked down at the time, so it, was, it, it kept us busy. But you, at some point, you have to just say, whoa, you can't. I, we can't interview everybody we want to interview. We can't, the, the focus it takes, I know what you two did to prepare for tonight, right? I know how many books you've read. I know how much you worked on this. We've been talking and we do that for every author too. Mm-hmm. And you just can't do that for as many things as you want to. So there's two of you and there's four of us. So yeah. we can probably do a little more, but yeah. It's I have I had that thought exactly is how is it that you do it every single week? And it's like you said, it's because you have a team to make it happen. So. And we have a big team, Lori. We have a producer, yeah. a production company. We mm-hmm. have a woman. Um, her name is Meg Walker. She's just amazing. And she's she does all the scheduling. She does the bookings. Mm-hmm. She gets the authors. She does the, you know, but we read the books and write the scripts. We, the authors, do exactly what you're doing. Sure. So we've never let go of that part, but yes. Um, but we have, we have these huge ideas. Well, let's do a spin-off of this and a spin-off of that. Our brains were going nutty. But at some point, you just have to, our primary job is to write books. So you mm-hmm. have to kind of like, shoop, yeah. Yeah. down to the middle lane. Yeah. It only gets so much time because there's only so much time. Oh, I'm reading. Talk about a good book. I am reading and listening to a talk by the guy. I'm going to blank on his name. um, Time management for mortals. Oh, interesting. Mm -mm -mm. Can I go back to something you said? This is imagination um, versus reason. Um, This is important in the book and especially with Meg's and, you know, C.S. Lewis, which we all now affectionately refer to as Jack. Jack puts her on the spot and really just makes her think in ways that she's not programmed to think. Think with your heart instead of your head sort of stuff. Facts versus feelings. Yeah. And so, um, but her, her journey to that is not a nice, 
clean line. Mm -hmm. So you've already sort of set the stage with imagination versus reason. So rather than have you repeat that, do you want to talk about being a storyteller? Um, Ted, you had some thoughts about that and Meg's journey. Right. So uh, Meg went through her struggle, as you were describing, with uh, reason versus imagination. But unlike you, she was very heavily on reason is right, yep. imagination is wrong. Right, right. Um, so she evolved with that. But kind of at the same time was Meg's becoming a storyteller. Mm. They weren't exactly the same thing, but they went hand in hand in, yeah. in many ways. And uh, Jack pushed her along this. You know, uh, Meg went to him to find out, is Narnia real? Yep. He didn't give her any answers. He gave her stories. Yep. Uh, but he made her listen to them. It was no note taking. Listen to what I'm telling you. Then she had to go and write that down so she could remember what to tell George. Yes. And wasn't just that, but that was part of her becoming a storyteller. And by the end of the book, uh, she's not becoming anymore. She is a storyteller. Yeah. No, so you know, imagination, reason, storytelling, Meg's evolving. You know, what what would you want to tell us about that? You know, first I'm going to tell you something um, really interesting. Well, it is to me. It's all uh, interesting. It, this is the only book I've ever used my family's names. Ooh. I don't. I don't. I think I used my name's mom's name Bonnie once for a character in the bookshop at Water's End, and spelled it different. But I don't usually use my family's names in books. And um, my son's name is George. Oh. My dad's name is George too. But my son's name is George. My daughter's name is Megs, oh, and wow. my well Megan, but um, Megs. And then mm -hmm. my husband and middle son are both Patrick, wow. which is which is the friend. So. Yeah. Um, when I was first writing Meg's, right, I, I, I knew a little bit about the fact that, that, that this, there was going to be this friction between reason and imagination, because it's also something Lewis wrote a lot about. And it's something Lewis and Joy, Jack and Joy talked a lot about was, was the friction between reason, because they were both so smart right that how how do they believe this stuff when they're so smart um and i loved how lewis talks about and i'm not going to be able to quote him directly so but talks about how logic is for making sense of things but imagination and story are what gives us meaning meaning yeah it's how we find meaning in the meaningless and make sense of the senseless is through story and there have been so many studies done about what makes a human being happy. And we say, if you ask a human, we're very predictable, what do you want? They'll say, I just want to be happy. But that's not really true. What's true is that we want meaning and connection, right? So that big Harvard study just came out that's been everywhere that the happiest people in the world are those that have good connections and good relationships and also that have some meaning in their life. So one of the primary ways we make meaning in our life is by storytelling or when we meet someone, tell me your story. Where are you from? Why are you the way you are? What? And so I felt like 
I could get Megs there if I let her experience that and I didn't have Lewis lecturing her about that. And that was the hardest part of the book for me was to try and figure out how do I go? It seems simple now because it's obvious now because I did it, but I couldn't figure out how to get from Lewis's childhood stories, these seven stories I had chosen, how to get them from his childhood to him, to Meg's, to George. How do I do that? Do I bring Lewis to the house? Mm. Do, does he lecture her? And that's when, when usually when I figure something out is in the wee morning hours. I was like, oh, he's going to make her turn it into a story. That's where the transformation comes. Is she's going to take the, what he's told her and she's going to have to translate that to her brother. And then we get it even in a third way because we see that from her brother's eyes, not from hers. Exactly. So it goes from Lewis to Meg's, Meg's to George, but we see it from George's eyes. So it's interesting you bring up the idea of happiness and joy. Um, joy is important in this book. This is something that is quoted. You said it's interesting when people quote you, but here we go, because there okay. are two things I think are important to say, is that George says, joy, it even tastes good saying it, doesn't it? And this is him and his conversation with Meg's, and he goes on to say, in a way of describing it, like when you finish a story and you wish you could read it like you've never read it before. So that just perfectly ties together what you were just saying. And you've done it so well in your book of how, how, do, how, do, you, how do you describe that beyond happy, beyond joy, it's, it's something I, I call bliss. Yeah. Um, which we don't have time for tonight, but we'll talk about it. I'll say that's a whole nother podcast. That's okay. a whole other podcast. Um, but yeah, you, you've captured it in, in such a wonderful way. Um, so tell me when, when you put joy into this, what, what did it mean for you? Um, I'm going to kind of ping back to how Lewis describes joy. So his um, biography, autobiography, is called Surprised by Joy. And it doesn't mean his wife, Joy Davidman. He was working on it long before he met her. But the emotion of joy, right, mm -hmm. um, which he often also uses the words for longing, right? There's this um, longing that can feel as joyful as getting the thing you're longing for. And I am, wish I was a person who memorized quotes. But essentially, for me, joy is... First of all, it's being present, like right here, right now in, in whatever's happening. And then that longing that rises up, um, you, you just read that quote that, that I had my character say, and I was talking to my daughter today and we both will read the same book and then talk about it all the time. And so I finished Maggie O'Farrell's book, Hamnet, and I, had, I told Megan about it. And she read it and we were both on the phone going, I wish we'd never read it so we could read it again because it's so good. Like, I wish it was a book I hadn't read yet. And so it's that, that like, it's un undefinable. Mm -hmm. So 
thing about books and impact it had on you. Um, a book that always sticks with me is A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, I <laughs> love Madeline Michael and that book. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, reading Once Upon a Wardrobe, there were a couple times where I kind of felt Madeline Langle coming through. Oh, I wish. Yeah. Megs, Megs and George remind me of Meg and Charles Wallace. Oh, I like that. I like okay. that a lot. <laughs> okay, so you, that was not on your mind then? No, I mean, it must have been on my mind. I love that book and I love Madeline Langle. So, like I said, I only have my own compost pile. But yeah. I hadn't really thought of that, so yes. And then um, Jack says to Megs at one point, your heart shines as bright and clear as the stars. And again, made me think of um, Mrs. Who's It, Mrs. What's Mrs. It. What's and, It. And that they were, they were stars. They actually were planets and stars, yeah. Right. Uh, so I was going to ask, ask you uh, about it, but I think you've already answered, so maybe it was No, it, it wasn't <laughs> conscious at all, but... Um, there's this great book called Steal Like an Artist. So, mm. Oh, maybe I was. Um, yeah. <laughs> but there's another book Madeline Langle wrote that um, I just love called Walking on Water. And Lori, if you like big magic, yeah. read Walking on Water by Madeline Langle. It's all about the creative process. And, and she talks in there a, a bit about um, A Wrinkle in Time and where it came from and how hard it was to sell. Think about what a classic that is now. Yeah. She could not sell that book. Nobody would publish it. Yeah, I've read some things talking about the reactions she got. Pretty yeah. brutal, really. Yeah, because she was a Christian and she was writing about other planets and planetary travel. And it's, uh, oh my gosh, that book is so powerful. I, I, in fact, I love that book so much I did not watch the movie. Wow. Yeah, I don't, don't want to see it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I want to go into something that, that Ted just said, and, and the look of surprise on your face was wonderful to see. Um, and Ted's good at this. He does this often in interviews when when he you have an aha moment that he created for you, which is- Yeah. Kind of, so um, it's, it's that dynamic between the writer and the reader. So when you're writing it, you're not necessarily intending for Ted to say, ah, a wrinkle in time, but that's what happened. So I'm just curious to get your your uh, your take on that, both as a reader and as a writer. I mean, you've given me like 40 books tonight of, of, of uh, books you would recommend. So you're clearly reading as much as you are writing. So talk to me about that and how much does that influence your writing? Okay, well, first of all, um, it, it that's another Madeline Langle quote that a book mm -hmm. is a bridge between a reader and a writer which I really mm -hmm. love. Mm -hmm. um, and you can cross back and forth. Um, but once it's a book, like you already built that bridge, you can't take it down. It's the reader gets to come over and tell you what they think, right? What it mean, what they see in it, what it means to them. Um, you have no control over that anymore. Right. Um, and then the second part, what it means to me, what a big, yeah. so when people, yeah, when right. people, yeah. When people um, ask me, what are my hobbies? I'm like, I don't, I don't have any. Like I, read and I, like, I read and I write and I talk about reading and I talk about writing. Um, I hang out with writers and I hang out with readers. Um, so, yes, I do. I read a lot. I read a lot. It's like a lifeblood. 
to me. I always have my nose in a book or in an audio book or, um, so I think that it all feeds one big river mm. is how, how I think of it. Um, everything I read is a stream that, that feeds kind of the underground river of imagination. I often imagine, um, to show them nuts, that I often imagine the imagination is kind of the river beneath the river, mm. right? So there's the river we can see, and then there's the river beneath the river, um, feeding all of it. And that's what the reading is. That's what the talking about it is. That's what the, you know, all of the ways that we immerse ourselves in a, in a literary world or a storytelling world <clears throat> feeds that larger river. And sometimes we don't know until Ted says, hey, <laughs> I noticed that. We interviewed, which is crazy, we interviewed um, Kevin Wilson recently on the show. He wrote, Now is Not the Time to Panic. It's mm. a great new book. And he, I noticed when I read it that there was a lot that reminded me of Holden Coalfield. And the town was called Coalfield. And he didn't see it. He was like, what? I was like, well, no, like Catcher in the Rye, Holden Coalfield, and your town is Coalfield. He was like, so, anyway. So, uh, you talked about research. I'm wondering in becoming Mrs. Lewis and Once Upon a Wardrobe, did you go to Oxford? And if you went to Oxford, I'm not sure I know how to pronounce it, but did you go to the Bodleian Library? You said it right, the Bodleian. Okay. And if, if your answer is yes, I'm really jealous. I did. Beautiful. And I saw the 900-year-old books, and I saw the cubbies, and I... I went everywhere. So I've been to Oxford probably four, five times now. I was just there this summer. I've been to the Kilns. I've been to Maudlin. I've been to the Bodleian. Um, I have been to Christ Church. I have been to all the places they hung out. I have, yes. So there's another hobby for you. That's a hobby. Reading, writing, travel, travel, or reading and writing. Or reading or writing or traveling about reading and writing. But um, yes, I am. Oxford to me is like stepping out of time. It's, it's, it's very, it's so ancient. And have you, have either one of you ever been? No, no. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's amazing. It has a, it's, it's like time kind of folds in on itself in a way. Um, it's, you can feel the history in the stones. It's, it's an amazing place. The closest I've been is Acadia National Park. Oh, well, I haven't been there. So I've heard that's <laughs> literally amazing that I haven't been. Yeah, but a few miles between there and London. Okay. Yes, a few. And with a with a large pond in between. Yes. So, hi Lisa. Hi Lisa. Hi, I have been to Oxford. <gasps> it was glorious. Yeah. Did you uh, climb up the tower? I did. Uh, to get the view, isn't that fabulous? I got yeah. to go to the top of Maudlin Tower, and yeah. yes, it's a, it's. You know, sometimes we travel and we come home with a couple memories or a few photographs. There are permanent things imprinted mm. on me for my trips there. Like just the name, I can, I can be there in my head in a millisecond. Yeah. yeah. Fabulous. 
Well, we don't have a lot of questions from our audience yet. Uh, we did have one comment uh, from Bonnie, and she said that joy is a great example of what you were talking about regarding women oh, um, back on that conversation. So, Lisa, if we don't have comments, can I squeeze in one more thing? Yes. Certainly. Squeeze it in. <laughs> so earlier you mentioned Pat Conroy. Funny, because um, I was reading, uh, I was thinking about you as a Southern writer, and um, two people that came to my mind were Reynolds Price and Conroy. And then in one of your books, you um, your dedication was to, to Pat Conroy, and then, yeah. of course, you talked about it. But I, I was just wondering, you know, if somebody calls you a Southern writer, how do you feel about that? Is that a, is that a good thing for you, or... Would you rather not be labeled like that? Oh, I I think it's a compliment. I mean, some okay. of the finest writers in the world are Southern writers. Um, you know, Harper Lee, come on. And yes, Ann Rivers Siddons, one of my all-time favorites. Some of the most Faulkner, like some of the most powerful writers that have ever written are Southern. And But I also think it is a moniker I don't deserve in some ways. I grew up in Philadelphia, oh. Pennsylvania, not Mississippi. And so <laughs> I moved south when I was 12, but I moved to Florida, South Florida, which as we all know is in the south, but isn't southern. Um, so it wasn't until I went to college that I was in the real south. I went to college at Auburn University in Alabama. So I feel like it's a moniker I don't deserve, and yet I'm proud of it when people use it. So, Well, we think you deserve it. Thank yeah, you. so um, I'm I'm not a Southerner, so people might say, "What he doesn't know what he's talking about." But when I read your books, it, it felt oh, right to me. Yeah. Well, if it feels, if you can feel the ambiance and landscape and geography, that's all I want. I did. There's a okay. certain charm about it. A hundred percent, and that's yeah. what I hope to. And in yeah. my Southern books, yeah. like you're not going to find a Southern flavor in Becoming Mrs. Lewis, but yes, in Surviving Savannah, you know. It, set in Savannah, Georgia, and some of my contemporaries, I sure hope you can. Yes. One more quick question for you. You've told us a little bit about the secret book, or yeah, the secret book of Laura Lee coming in May, but I would imagine seeing, seeing your resume that maybe you're already have started on another book. Even though that one's done, not out yet, a little bit. Okay. Can you give us a tiny little sneak peek at that? No, because I'm in that kind of tender um, beginning. I can tell you this. This is for the first time in 17 books. This time was, I hit kind of a, I love The Secret Book of Flora Lee so much. And I've been really deep in that book for a while. And I traveled this summer to all the places where it's set. And I was trying to start a new book, trying to start a new book. And about October of this year, I said, it's not working. And I started something new in November. And it's sort of based on what I've been working on all year. But that's the first time I've taken almost a year's worth of work and put it away, pulled out a new notebook and started over. So um, I'm trying to find my way. But I can tell you that it's set um, partially in Maine. It was inspired Ooh. by a woman who disappeared in the 1920s. Okay. And that's all I'm going to tell you. 
That's plenty. I'm already intrigued. You know, I, I know this is a long shot, but if you ever find yourself on a book tour that brings you this way, you know, we, we'd love to be able to do a face-to-face -face interview with you. I would love it. I think the closest my tour is taking me, I'm on the road in May. I think the closest I'll be to you is in Boston. Okay. That's pretty far. That's pretty far. I'm in Philadelphia. We might be closer now. I'm in Lancaster. Yeah, exactly. I'm in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, That's New close. Jersey. Yeah, Lancaster. Lancaster. That we can do. Yeah, yeah. come trip. see me in Lancaster. <laughs> yeah, and New Jersey. I'm going to be in Manasquan, New Jersey. Oh, yeah, that is reasonable. So we'll be seeing you again. Yes. I love talking to all, um, Ted and Lori. Thank you for all the hard work. I know what it takes to, to have a, a conversation. And thank you for diving so deeply into my work. It means a lot to me. Thank you. It's truly been a joy. Thank you. And be, on behalf so of Carroll County Public Library, I'd like to thank Ted and Lori and Patty for joining us tonight. Lori, did you have one final thought there? Nope. I was just asking you if we needed to, to wrap it up. So you're already there. Thank you. <laughs> Lisa, thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Take care. Good night, y'all. Thank you.